1999 defeat to Argentina in the Rugby World Cup brought on a period of true professionalism in Irish rugby. It heralded a period of really unprecedented success that has brought us to this very day. Unfortunately, that success hasn't uh, materialised at the Rugby World Cup in those 20 years. And because of that, defeat to New Zealand, another quarter-final defeat, and really embarrassment for Ireland in Japan last Saturday maybe has brought about another sea change and maybe this will be a catalyst for things to come or maybe I'm being far too positive. Mick McCarthy here along with Morris Brosnan for World and Union Ball Studies Rugby Weekly Rugby Show. Morris, I don't know, we'll talk about like where Ireland need to go from here. That's going to be the majority of this conversation because we are you know, at a very, very low ebb and a very low place at the moment. But first of all, talk about uh, confidence, unwarranted confidence. Uh, I do seem to remember last Tuesday we said here, you convinced yourself to choose Ireland. Ireland, we're going to win this game. I'm actually not going to take the piss out of that. Like that's, you know, it's, I'm obviously just... Oh, just you're entitled to it though. <laughs> no, yeah, I am. But I think the bigger conversation is actually, you know... How, mo- how much this team didn't perform and that we were all probably lulled in with the expectation that they would get back to their 2018 form some way shape or form or that they were you know they had something up their sleeves or that they you know that the coaches had something in mind and forget about New Zealand's performance which is outstanding it's like Ireland didn't execute even one of those things and didn't come anywhere close to even laying a glove on New Zealand see that's my my like my main takeaway like like there's been so, I, as people know the reaction to this has been pretty fierce and there's been so many different strains about style and players and selection and all this kind of stuff and the, like the I actually think the chief problem and for this team and I think myself we had a debate either on or off air last week I can't actually remember about uh, the quarterfinal factor how much of a factor that would be for them and yeah. mentally I think that was a massive thing I think they actually would have lost against any of the seven teams that turned up this weekend given okay, the yeah. performance they put in they were so like we can get into it in a couple of seconds but the level of inaccuracy it doesn't matter what style you play if you've that many uh, errors and that many turnovers and just that really like really fundamentals entirely off like and remember that feeling this is going to sound like a very stupid thing to say um, but you just have to take it in context of what, what I'm talking about remember that feeling that I described to you after I'd watched the Japan Ireland game back that I wasn't necessarily sure uh how good Japan actually were because Ireland was so bad. Yeah. I actually had a similar enough feeling after watching this game. Like when, I mean, New Zealand are phenomenal and like they will punish even like a minuscule of a mistake. But when you give them such easy access into a game, I don't actually think they have to go be that strenuous. Like they turned up expecting a way bigger challenge than the one that they actually got. I think England will present a much greater challenge, obviously, than what Ireland did. But that's that, the main thing for me is just like the whatever we're about to tactically or technically or selection wise there is a there is a much bigger issue which is like a psychological issue with this team and that they just totally did not turn up really did not turn up in a way that actually didn't happen in 2015 in 2015 i think it was you could put that down to absentees and stuff like that but that sure. doesn't mean that doesn't I mean that's not that, yeah. that doesn't mean that it's not a, a factor like that that I, i'm talking about that result it's not a factor in what was just an entire like, I don't even think you can call it an underperformance. It was a non-performance. They just did the, the really fundamental stuff that they did not do well. Absolutely. And we'll get into a little bit more detail now in a second. But um, also I want to tell you what else is coming up in the show. We will also look ahead a little bit and see what can be done and what poor Andy Farrell has um, to, has been left with. And, you know, like is... is 
I will. I, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of uh, maybe maybe premature appointment of Andy Farrell last year, but we'll talk a little bit about what's kind of coming up for Ireland. We'll talk about the World Cup semi-finals, which, despite our exit, do promise to be intriguing in every way and that even includes the appointments or non-appointments of the referees for we'll talk we'll say goodbye farewell to the cherry blossoms the, this japan team that have lit up the world cup um totally and we'll be very very sad to see them go and maris you're going to talk to the usa attack coach greg mcwilliams someone um who a lot of people in ireland will know but also someone that can give us a little bit of an insight into what's actually been happening in this rugby world cup that ireland have been left behind at yeah so he obviously would have prepped against these what we're going to talk about later against this english defensive system and stuff like that but beyond that greg williams is a pretty interesting guy because uh he had played in the al actually worked with the irish women's team before he went to the us is kind of at the forefront of this what will hopefully become a booming rugby industry within america and that's you know uh he's involved in new york we've actually spoken to people like tiger leader about what's going on in uh, america right now mm-hmm. and kind of the ways they're trying to make there and then separately to all of that you've got the tournament factor that in, in tournament rugby the way the game is developing and how coaches respond to that it's something that we've talked a lot about with other coaches in, in recent times I think Greg particularly given the fact that he was actually at this tournament is particularly well placed to elaborate on that don't have it on the running order to talk about the sort of <laughs> ongoing backlash to the backlash and the argument as to whether Ireland are going to get criticised enough or not criticised enough or whether supporters are embarrassing for supporting their team I think a lot of that is can go without saying that, you know, you don't have to drag people over the hot coals to criticize the performance, which we're about to do. You don't have to insult them personally. And you probably should allow a supporter to do whatever they want. And supporting their team to the end, even in bad times, isn't necessarily the end of the world and really doesn't harm anybody in the grand scheme of things. And that's just what I want to say about that, because I know it is a massive issue that's on the, the talking heads this week. There's no need to go into it, but other than to say that it is just fucking annoying and like i the, the most the biggest issue right is actually is this idea of like these definitive statements like the pretend that everything is either good or bad or black or white like for example right i could look say to you and i was like mick the, the coverage of this irish team has been way too soft did you see the way air sport talked to him after the game did you see the way certain players have spoken in the media did you see the way former players were given platforms on different newspapers or uh relations of players are given platforms of different newspapers to make excuses for them I could point you to that and I could say, look at the, this or I could take the totally opposite and say they're way too harsh and I could point you at uh, the Sunday papers I thought were brilliant in how they kind of tore through what was uh, a total loan performance that how, how Gary Naveman I could point you you could look at say look at the air sport coverage and look how soft that was after the game or I could say look at RTE's coverage and look how harsh Eddie O'Sullivan and even Stephen Ferris was yeah. after that game the point is right if you want to make a point about anything you'll find evidence for it yeah. or, there's and, enough coverage out there these days to do that so as well in yeah. reality maybe that you have to kind of understand like it'll take a bit of brain work here but maybe from understand <laughs> it's, it's actually more complex than that it's actually this is a really nuanced conversation there is good and bad and there's everything in between in general I think the coverage has been very fair actually for what it's worth yeah. but to, to try and cherry pick evidence for your own argument it's the most annoying thing in the world is this inability to grasp that this stuff is actually complex that it's not just one or the other it can actually be a bit of both but anyway yeah and it leads me on to something i do want to talk about that leads on to like we're going to talk about like what actually broke down with ireland and all this but before we do this is just a little bit more interesting to me is the idea of joe schmidt's legacy to a probably a lesser extent rory best but let's concentrate on joe i was on um on weekend am and Virg- on on virgin media on sunday morning and i found myself answering this question and became very self-conscious of how you 
talk about this because my feeling is like you constantly say things aren't black and white for me his legacy is tarnished by ultimately two failed world cups i can give a pass for 2015 although a lot of people can't again the the hardliners you know i think the 2015 worked out against us there was mistakes made for sure but i think ultimately we were caught by all of our most important players going down at the same time right this one was a farce from start to finish all of 2019 has been maybe as Sinead Kassan wrote about in the Sunday Independent his time was up a year ago you know that's that's unfortunate for Joe but it is the fact I just really don't want to dismiss or cast as irrelevant the rest of the work that he's done he won three Six Nations including a Grand Slam unparalleled for an Irish coach if you want to take his time in Ireland as a whole he also won back-to-back Heineken Cups with Leinster he also was the first Irish coach to win on a Southern Hemisphere tour to one of the big three. We beat Australia down there. First Irish coach to win a test match in South Africa and the first Irish coach, obviously, as we know, to beat New Zealand, both in general and in Dublin. Those things, I don't care what anybody says about what was on the line or what wasn't on the line. They're not nothing. And he is the most successful Irish coach in history. And I don't think it should be cast aside in his legacy that because in the narrative of the way people are talking at the moment, nothing matters except the World Cup. Things do matter. Four years is too long for only one thing to be to, to be relevant. Um, however, it's a blot. It is absolutely a blot. And it's really, really unfortunate because I think a lot of us really, really like Joe and really respect what he has done and yeah. would like to have seen, you know, the fact. but you have to be honest and say when it mattered the most, the job wasn't done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a really fair assessment. Um, really accurate. I think actually, like, the, there's not a huge amount to add to that. I just would say, like, that the like the Joe Smith legacy will, like, I, I, same thing. It's going to be good and bad, and it will extend beyond that. Like, I do think one of the best things to come out of it was that he has built much more intelligent rugby players, like players who are a lot more ingrained now, arguably ingrained in one certain system. Which, mm. he, he, but I do think it's like. Like I heard a discussion yesterday about like oh how would New Zealand play under Joe Schmidt and I was like they would obviously play the same way New Zealand do like do these people forget how Joe Schmidt's Leinster played like I think he kind of beca- became the biggest issue was that he kind of realised that maybe there's a skill set that wasn't there with certain Irish players and he tried to craft around that which ultimately I think contributed to the downfall although it's certainly not the reason for the level of accuracy that we saw on Saturday but yeah like I think that's fair. Do you agree, so if we're getting into kind of what broke down then, do you agree with the kind of theory that I saw it in one of the papers, and sorry I can't remember, is like that, you know, ultra-conservatism is the new risk-taking, almost in that like the risk is not taking risks. The way the game is going. So I think there's more wrong with Ireland than a static style of play and all this, and you're talking about the psychological issues, and they're the most important thing we have to talk to when we get into kind of the Andy Farrell era going forward. But that style of play is also important, and it's like we watch what Japan did, we watch what all the teams do, the successful teams, even England who are like, and South Africa who are barreling hulks, they still will try things with a backline and everything like that, whereas Ireland's so one-dimensional. You know, I think there is almost, like, it was this, it was trying to be risk-averse, but what it was actually doing was taking the biggest risk of them all because you only had one plan. Yeah, like, maybe, like... <laughs> It's funny, right? I actually think that when you look at what South Africa did at the weekend, even at times what New Zealand did, like there's Ireland. If Ireland had stuck to the style, the in theory, I think they could have made a semi final. Like if they had totally bought in, they, like they had. It in, I don't know if you'd win a World Cup playing that style, but I think if you have that style, but what you won't do is like you have to do that 
brutally effective like and to the extent that Ireland did in 2018 which is why it's so rare because it's so minimal errors like it's totally you give a team no entry points into a game you give them no kind of easy ins like you know what I mean like they really have to fight to even get a platform and instead you get a scenario where I was just thinking about this I watched the game back yesterday like the very first penalty the, 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 you're talking about the first penalty where Scott did six out his hand to flap him down that comes off an Irish line out that's CJ Sander was such a most the most infuriating carry of all time like it's not intelligent in any way it's one dimensional there's no footwork it's direct carry so easy to prefer that's why New Zealand can have a three man tackle there because they know that ball is not going to be shifted wide they know that he's not going to try and faint or dummy or anything they know he's coming straight down their channel three man, ta- three man tackle ball's turned over government sailor starts to six out his hand is looking not to be yellow carded they kick the penalty then Aaron Smith's first try what's that come off that comes off an Irish line out ball's thrown in uh, doesn't hit his man technically uh, ball f- comes loose uh, Furlong tries to regather it knocks on scrum off that attacking scrum Ireland don't like the most fundamental thing the one on one of defence is from the inside out stack from the inside out that's such a basic your pillars they don't have a pillar on the left side Smith can snipe around the edge of the rock and, and get in like it, that must have been mm-hmm. you, you, the, like that is so fundamental as I can remember being 12 in putting that my hand up in the air who's, who's, yeah. who's each pillar that's so basic that's your second try the next try is Aaron Smith coming on the other side. What does that come from? Henshaw carry off an Irish line out. Again, the exact same thing that CJ Sander did a couple of minutes later. Direct carry, no footwork. Carry yeah. the ball as if it's to protect his face. Like It's such an easy to rip the ball. And if you want to even go back further for that try, just a minute further, it comes from Johnny Sexton missing, not ma- not finding missing touch, touch yeah. when Ireland basically needed a try there. We needed them all over a try and make that 10-7 for it to be any contest. You go back to what you're talking about with Henshaw and then I'll just throw in another thing for that. You're talking about pillars or whatever. Jacob Stockdale, for the eventual finish, runs offside, catches himself offside, takes himself out of the game to get back onside, leaving Smith the opening to run in over, you know, to run into the corner. Just basic mistakes and you talk about that try that's three very basic mistakes in one phase basically and so you're talking about those that's two tries and a penalty that have come off Irish line it's basically that Irish line an Irish line an Irish platform has given them entry into a ball you're like that, which is just I don't know that's so infuriating you then you talk about the final try again an Irish line out Sexton runs a wrap Bricani runs a ridiculous line way too close to him. He can't get the ball free. Ball comes loose. They kick up the field. Board marks or a breakaway. Try. That's three tries all off Irish attacks. That's so yeah. I, like New Zealand didn't have to do anything there really. Like in terms of there was no they didn't run a set play. Like, they didn't have to do a strike move. There was that was them back in their skill set because Ireland gave them such an easy access into the game. In that I haven't even mentioned the Conor Murray box kick which got blocked down having mentioned Conor Murray shooting out of the line randomly not making a tackle when he tried to make the read before that for second try yeah. like, Keith Earls holding on to the ball too long and eventually the, it getting, grounding get, it yeah, on the, getting on the na- tackle getting yeah. nailed the kick up in the air that Earls and Kearney uh, or that Earls and Ringrose just crashed into each other the, when Kearney dwindled when the kick went in behind for the other one like this this, this stuff is <laughs> like, yeah. Like, so what what was it then? Like so we talked I remember sitting in this studio after the Wales match, like, you know, last March, and there was a fear that this was a broken team. That they just whatever happened to them in Dublin against England just completely collapsed. And I don't know how they were so brittle or if they were. If this is this is obviously just me re, you know, it could be me uh, you know, putting things out there that aren't true, only the players themselves know, and maybe they don't even know yet. Like, you know, yeah. maybe they need like maybe there's there's counselling sessions that will make this uh become apparent. But it felt to me like that 
they performed the same way against Wales as they had against England, which proved it wasn't a one-off. They didn't play well in the intervening game, in the you know in in the in-between games in the Six Nations either. You know, and you're thinking, God, this there's something seriously wrong here. The Twickenham game, obviously, in the warm-up sort of suggested that was the case as well. And then, obviously, Japan and and what we've seen, like, even against Russia, you know, where they just couldn't... And and the basic mistakes that you're talking about here, the really, like, the really, like, do you know what? Even outside of things that we were punished for or that you're talking about there, do you know, like, basic kind of, like, under no pressure knocking on because you're worried that you're going to get hit or Sox, sex and fire you know, or, that, or, or that you you know we're in such trouble here I have to find this gap that doesn't exist and because of that you don't even catch the ball Keen Healy picking up the ball when the, it was still clearly in the rook yeah. you know at least according to the referee which is the only thing that matters and going for it and then kind of going what 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 like you know they're just mental errors that come from the pressure of I think not believing in themselves so as soon as one thing went wrong in that game it was just over. Yeah, like yeah, and I do think it like it an element that is just like choking, like it, like not you know, even something as basic as you know the very first strike play that Ireland ran off that scrum, like the level of inaccuracy that was in that. It, it's the first move they ran, and it was the scrum moved left, so hit uh, scocked it on the wing, and it was like him a bounce back play. He comes back across, gives to Sexton, Sexton's kicks to Earls. It's trying to manipulate the backfield, get Earls one on one with Bridges, get the ball in his hand, stretch. New Zealand. Instead, what happens is the ball comes into Stockdale's hand. He doesn't fix Severis at all. So before he's even bounced back across, Severis is running backwards into the backfield. Like he knew what was coming. So Reese can retreat back to help out in the. Uh, it starts coming back towards the fullback position. Sexton kicks a kiss, uh, kicks a kick across to Earls, which is totally inaccurate. Earls has no chance to compete whatsoever. Bridges it bounces once. Bridges gets on the ball. Severis is there to support him. New Zealand take that ball. Their re- reaction is to kick down the, the line. Give it, it's an Ireland line out. They've actually lost ground, so they had one attacking platform with a scrum. They've ended up at another attacking platform with a line out behind where the scrum was. They've, so they've actually ended, it's actually worked against them entirely. And all, all like we've seen they. Jacob Scotchett has a skill set to fix a winger like Severis. Johnny Sexton has a skill set to make a crossfield kick accurately into Keith Earls' arms. Yeah. Keith Earls has a skill set to compete in the air. And none of them did that, which, that, which is why, by the way, when I said at the very start that I think the mental aspect of this was the most troubling, that's actually why. It's because yeah. when you see it, that's perfect evidence of that. We know there's players capable of doing that and they just blatantly haven't. And afterwards, like, we've gotten some sort of fragments of reasons why you know like uh, Joe Schmidt was pretty interesting I thought when he talked about that after they bet New Zealand in November last year they've been building up to a quarter final all like for a year and that's Ireland have always done that there's there's been so much talk of four year cycles and the need to you know pull things together and yet still even the evidence suggests that even with all those four year cycles and minute planning and uh, detail that that's in a lot of ways isn't really relevant like France were a basket case 12 months ago and got as far as Ireland did in the same tournament so I don't know what uh, yeah it, it I, just, think, it, I actually think you're so right there I think that's actually something that could be focused on in the future and uh, again sometimes when you're talking about something at such a low level like at such, at such a low ebb like Irish international rugby is at the moment it is hard to kind of pinpoint little things that matter because it feels like it doesn't matter now who it's almost like who cares about the 2023 world cup we'd be lucky not to get the wooden spoon the six nations (laughs) you know there is a feeling that but if you if i would say one thing is that i think a lot of the analysis about us getting the cycles wrong is bullshit i think that we're too worried about the cycle exactly you know (laughs) so there's a question of like oh should johnny sexton be ireland captain it was like well why can't johnny sexton be ireland captain for as long as he's in the team if he's the right captain you know and forget about the next world cup 
forget about it. Like, you know, just play... Just to say, oh, well, New Zealand will develop players, South Africa will develop players. And all. But that's what we have to do anyway. We need to be developing players. We need to be bringing people through. If you look at the last World Cup compared to now, we've got Stockdale, we've got Ringrose. You know, there's, there has... There's, I, I'm not even thinking of James Ryan. You know, like, really, like, the best Irish players have come true in the last four years. It happens naturally. You know, I think that we, like, it, this, it was an obsession with the World Cup that's costing us this. And if you think about, like, you look at this match then 46 14 that scoreline flattered ireland and that's a world cup quarter final that's unacceptable like it just is you know and if you think about i mentioned argentina at the start of the show right that was kind of the notorious disaster of irish rugby 2007 was more of a kind of an overall thing i think this is closer to that because of what happened with japan and everything like that but this was a humiliation that's going to be based on one game. This is the this is the game they're going to remember. This is the scar tissue that they're going to have to shake. I think it's a lot worse than Wales. I definitely think it's a lot worse than Argentina four years ago. And I think it's worse than any other game in history. I think that it almost kind of makes you forget about the Japan, our first ever loss to a Tier 2 team, and say it's like, no, we were humiliated by a team that were almost laughing behind their backs at the idea that we had been world number one and the biggest threat to them before going into this game, and this is what we put up. We were pathetic. And I don't know, it'll take a long time for an Irish team to be treated seriously in that um, scenario again, but also for them to treat themselves seriously. How do you pick yourself up from this? Yeah, and it's a really good question. And I think like all of this stuff is... like The, like, the, the idea that the next World Cup cycle starts now, I think, is nonsense. Like, it, yeah, it, it really... I, I think ultimately, I think it's like winning breeds winning. Like So like if you can be... Like, I think that's what... Eddie Jones was supposedly in crisis two years ago with England and they lost nine games out of 12. And suddenly they come turn around and start, like, you know, clawing back the scoreboard and looking a bit more stronger and, like put themselves in contention in the last six nations and look to be back on the right track and now they're in a semi-final I think and even you know the France example is actually really interesting like if France, bar one act of absolute lunacy in the second half France are in a World Cup semi-final you know like mm. the Wales don't come back from yeah and like, a questionable score uh, win the game yeah, as well absolutely like, you know, yeah. like there's a lot of yeah so I, I mean the, the idea that the World Cup cycle starts now I think is nonsense the, Ireland's immediate and main priority has to be winning and that you focus on the six nations and i mean you can introduce new players but that's ultimately towards a goal of winning that i think you can like you can both progress and win at the same time i don't think they're these are separate conversations the first like andy farrell needs to i think particularly look at ireland's attack and that, that'll be the duty of somebody like mike cat who's coming in um was the, the attack coach was also involved in the 2015 world cup um with england which I mean, didn't go too well. No, <laughs> um, but yeah, and uh, you know you can take certain indicators from the World Cup as well. Like I would love to see Ireland try and become a bit more like if you know we mentioned actually the England game when Rob Kearney and it quickly faded away because they got so hammered. Rob Kearney was standing in as a second receiver there. If that was something that they were genuine about doing, I don't think Rob Kearney would have been playing a fullback. It would have been Joey Carberry. I think there's still scope to do that. This nonsense that oh he's not playing that position with his province, so why can he do it with his country? Why is that not a problem for New Zealand? Like why can New Zealand be so adjusted with these yeah. things? Like the if if he's good enough to do it, if the if you want to play that 
two-pronged attack. I think that for the first Six Nations game, I would love to see Sexton, who we've seen the reliance on one game doesn't break a player. Like We've seen the reliance on Sexton in this tournament. We, Ireland yeah. play better when he's on the field. So if you can get them both on the field, Sexton and Kyrie for a Six Nations, I think that'd be a great thing. Can I jump in there, though, on the point you're making? Because it's a very good one. And, like, he doesn't play there for his problems. That's a very familiar thing. The conservatism in Irish rugby goes far beyond Josh, Josh Smith. Absolutely. And it goes far beyond what we're going... It, 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 by the way, it's in the media, it's in the punditry, and it's in the game itself, and it's in the IRFU, and it's in the provinces, right? So it's not like... It, it, there's no one person responsible for it. It's a natural thing. It's our rugby culture. And there is this, you know... If you would see, say if a kid was coming through and he wasn't getting a game for the Hurricanes in Super Rugby, but Hansen had seen something in him, he'd played maybe like minor 10 and had made a couple of substitute appearances and he thought he was good enough, he'd be brought into the squad and he'd be bumped up. Here you have to pay your dues, you have to do everything. You know, Joey Carberry can't play fullback because he doesn't play there for Munster, but it's okay for Bowden Barrett. You know, it's it's this lack of trust, lack of imagination, lack of everything, and everything is so formulated, and everything is so true, you know, true to motions. And I don't know how that changes by Andy Farrell saying we need a new style for this year's Six Nations, or saying hey, new new regime in town here, lads. Here's my cat. You know, I, I that goes far beyond the forty five people that are going to meet up in Carton House or wherever they're going in January. Yeah, it does. Absolutely, it does. And I, like, I think that um, like Andy Farrell can, can start that change, but he certainly can't invent it widely. But I do think like if you look, if you're to look at the coaches that are in the game now, that he has like somebody like Andy Friend seems to be totally um, okay with trying to like, develop rugby and build players and stuff like that. I think that's a good thing. I think Larkham in at Munster now is a really good thing as well. You know, like I'm talking about here from an attacking strategy. I think Stuart Lancaster has been a great thing for, for Leinster as well. All of this stuff I think yeah. will like ultimately like you're, what you're talking about is changing a culture kind of in the, in the entire sport in this nation like it, yeah. and, and uh, I think that's a like this is a really boring answer it's a really slow process like of course it is but is anyone starting it I suppose yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and I mean we don't know we'll have to wait and see what I think to be honest I actually think Andy Farrell can start that process okay. I do like I, I do think that by uh, if, if you used to be brave with selections and try Carberry try, like if, if Lammer's in the form just start him like if he's the form player you, you start I, I, the, this thing of picking on status with Irish rugby is not working so I think that the, you, you, we're going to have to gravitate towards that like I think there's players who looking ahead to a Six Nations who have to be under threat now for their, yeah. for their starting spot Andy Farrell was, select, was appointed you know the day Joe Schmidt decided to stay on and it was a continuity thing and Ireland were you know, in on form, the best team in the world at the time. I laugh saying that of what people will say to it, but you know, on form. And we were heading into a big 2019, and after that, we had to continue on, and nobody really argued with it. So I'm not going to stop and, in hindsight, say it was a mistake. However, given what has happened, which nobody has foreseen, do you still feel like that they're almost stuck with something? Though, though Farrell might be a great coach, we needed a fresh look and a fresh take and the last thing these guys need is familiar faces when they go in there in January potentially like I, Farrell's job now is to kind of like 
the you know hold on to the good elements of the previous regime while casting aside the bad and that's actually a lot more of a as a harder process than it sounds because like generally these dips kind of can very quickly become malaises and you have to try and get a team out of a flunk and the, that's why yeah, you know it feels like it's more of a malaise than and, a dip at the moment yeah, yeah. and it, th- that's why you know you talk about like in any sport you know fresh face bounces and stuff like that that teams can just be reinvigorated with it. and I think that's something that they're going to have to bear in mind like that if when Mike Hack comes in or John Fogarty is going to come in and tr- hopefully that'll be a fresh voice for the but I mean a lot of Leinster players will be familiar with him anyway mm. so that's I mean it's that's definitely a concern like and that and that's something that I think the coaching team can have to be conscious of like you do need to there is absolutely no question this squad needs freshening up. Like, yeah. there's no, there's no question this regime needs freshening up, and they have to be conscious of that moving forward. Whether that's in style or selection or even coaching, that that all that stuff, this stuff that they have to be conscious of. So, like, you would hope that they they are. I think they are. To be honest, I think they have the intelligence to do that, and yeah. that they kind of. But we need to see signs of that in the Six Nations. Like, that's what I'm talking about again. This, that, that's when this process starts. The last question on this, right? It's something that you've no real way of knowing, but just I want to get your sense on it. Whoever you mentioned, how smart the players are and how thoughtful they are about the game is there any fear that a change comes from a very experienced a change is being implemented by a new coaching staff but there's a very experienced and powerful dressing room there that have a lot of leaders that have very set ways about how they play the game I'm not going to suggest that like individuals are uncoachable but (laughs) dot 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 um yeah like that's an interesting question one that probably wouldn't have thought about uh before like the i don't think it's unfair to say that that has been an issue in Irish rugby before like i remember the in like in thinking about it in hindsight the incredible reaction when rob penny suggested wants to try and play one three three one and uh, second rows would stand on the wing like as, as if why would our jobs be to be on the wing and in in hindsight that was you know he kind of saw what was coming down the tracks like he saw the need for these to have a better, greater skill sets to be more expansive to try and get more players in the ball, um, and that was it was definitely an issue there. Like there was, it was definitely an issue that there was a reluctance to change yeah. in that regime. So, and maybe like it is interesting that the teams that have demonstrated the most greatest ability to change, not to improve now, but to change, are teams who start from a very low ebb. Like Connacht, for example, started yeah. from a very low ebb when Pat Lamb came in, and he kind of built that into them and Andy, Far- Andy Friends area is continuing that good work now um, so yeah I mean I think that's probably a concern and I actually think that that is why you need to kind of marry uh, youthful impressionable players with these experienced maybe it's kind of not stuck in their ways but certainly uh, ideas formed core that is there like I think that change can come from within but it has to I, if a coach is going to enforce it, I think he has to have enough kind of players who are impressionable enough to, to do it as well like I think that like this is it's a really boring kind of coaching term but it's a process like and this stuff, and that just that has to be part of the process like the process yeah. has to be kind of uh, developing that as well i think we do need to see what's coming next as well so like i would i would encourage people anyway but even more so now is to go and watch these pro 14 games before the internationals come back into the team go and see kind of what's there get familiar with these lads because it wouldn't surprise me if you see a big change over the next 12 months with guys who you think are there for another four or five years but suddenly they're not getting their game with their province and because 
I just there's going to be a sense of an injection of new blood I think that's going to come and you will see a lot of these guys very 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 good players playing for the four provinces at the moment that you might not even be that familiar with because they don't play Champions Cup games you know um, so the last thing on Ireland then and we will I promise move on you did an interesting article about the contenders for the next captaincy it's funny I was reading before I read it I'm like there was a there's a part of me that's just like we need to do this it's a it's a it's a it's a you know, box ticking thing that they need a new captain and they need to name him and it needs to be part of almost the coaching staff. But I couldn't care less <laughs> because it's a, it's a small bit of paint over a very, very, very broken door. Um, but at the same time, when I was reading your piece on it, there is some very interesting ideas as to what the choice of captain will tell us about the new regime. What did you, where did you come down on in the end? I know James Ryan is winning the public vote. Yeah, so, it, well, I mean, we always start there actually, which is interesting. I think, like, I boiled it down to kind of, I think there's about four contenders, really. Like, I think what you want is somebody who's a definite starter, has demonstrated kind of that this leadership attribute, i.e. the ability to be a captain, and also, like, on, on this team, like, somebody who kind of, can continue on the improvements and stuff like that and that's why actually the four contenders I came up with was James Ryan Peter Matney Guy Ringrose Johnny Sexton now Sexton is the least popular by a long shot in the public vote because he's 34 and we're looking for a new era yeah exactly yeah. and which is you know the public mood interesting enough Guy Ringrose is second uh, lowest the, uh, Peter Matney 28% of the vote and James Ryan 52% James Ryan and I think to be honest James Ryan ticks more boxes than others in terms of he's a definite starter for the next couple of years he'll be around for the World Cup cycle I don't think that's an issue actually if, if that was if Peter Manny was picked or even if Johnny Sexton, Sexton was picked yeah. I don't think that's an issue but just uh, given the fact that he kind of hints at a new voice uh, a new breed of familiarity a, a face you can hang your hat on that kind of like you know all that kind of yeah. stereotypical stuff I think he's probably actually the leading contender but I actually don't think this is one or none like I think Peter Manny would be a great captain I think he's done that really well with Munster in that role um, he's kind of experienced leading this team already anyway in when you know Rory Best was absent or whatever so I think he's definitely a contender the Sexton one I'm not so sure about to be honest like I do think that uh, he's only captained this team once there is like he is 34 um, he's talked a lot about being around for the next line store but given the competitors that he has for his position and also given the fact that like I do think that there's a certain need for a captain to try and stay removed at certain times like, you can't cross a referee and I actually think Sexton has enough kind of standing that he can talk to directly yeah, to referees anyway without yeah but um, and maybe kind of told line. I think Conor Murray's in a similar bracket he talks to referees anyway um and I, Nigel Owens even said to him at the weekend there's a way of asking but uh the yeah. small stuff like that I think is things but to, like to be honest I think that James Ryan is probably the leading contender but I actually wouldn't have like I don't think there's any issue if Peter Manny ends up getting it I think the thing for James Ryan for me is there's I, I'd be interested to see kind of what sort of a leader he will be he leads by example at the moment but you obviously have to do a lot more I would have thought the same in 2003 and when Brian O'Driscoll was a kid who was given the captaincy when Keith Wood was out for the year which he obviously took over permanently then after the 2003 World Cup and was probably one of Ireland's greatest captains and you didn't think at the time that he was, that was coming, that guy, yeah. but he did it by example and sure why wouldn't you lead it and I James Ryan would have those qualities you would think but also probably reminds you of another great Ireland captain in his style of play which is Paul O'Connell obviously you know so I think why not if, if James Ryan is Ireland's best player and he's in a position where you can play for another 10 years why not say to him you're the man we're building around you from now on and I think that would actually be a very very positive step coming off a captaincy where the most senior man had the job 
as much as respect, I, I have a lot of respect for Rory Besson. The players definitely do. He was an underrated captain in many ways. But, you know, I think having, you know, a guy who's being chosen rather than there by default is probably a good idea at this stage, you know. Um, Morris, let's move on because we could talk about Ireland until the cows come home and we will again, you know, because we'll be back even talking about club rugby in a couple of weeks. But there is another couple, uh, three games to be played in this World Cup, four actually, technically. I'm not sure we'll watch the, the third and fourth place. Does that still exist? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I thought there was, there's some something they got rid of it in, but it might not be the Rugby World Cup. Um, so, South Africa, Wales has its own story. That could be very interesting. We could, like, Wales have a very live chance of reaching their first ever World Cup final. Um, South Africa, impressive at times against Japan. Looked a little bit all over the place in the first half, but we should be fair to Japan and say that that wasn't entirely just down to them. Um, but they were kind of, they were ruthlessly efficient in the second half. Yeah, like the, and that's why I think, you know, when you talk about styles, like the Japan, Scotland, oh sorry, South Africa, what they did to Japan is nearly enough. Like it's uh, trying to choke them in the set piece. It didn't necessarily work out as well as they would have hoped in the scrum, but the lineout there's been. Lineout killed them. Yeah. Their lineout is incredible. I think they've only lost one throw in the entire tournament so far. Their line it's incredibly accurate. Um, then on top of that, then like, you know when you like, Oh, this is true of England as well against Australia. Like when you've got playing against this, is, I think this is actually the reason Joe Schmidt would point to not playing this style is when you look at what Japan and Australia did, where it's basically they can't get any go for a ball, even though they're try, like they're doing a lot of stuff in front of a defensive line. You've got a like a defense that's coming up and like constantly smashing like like for Malin, like the, the guy just comes up like like a train. Any hit he hits, like we, we talked about dominant tackles last year. Any hit tackle he makes must be a dominant tackle. He just yeah. kind of can crush people when he comes up, and that can be sometimes be enough. And that's why it wouldn't be as true necessarily as much for Japan. As was for Australia who just baffingly decided that they weren't going to kick the ball really mm. and tried to play under this kind of ferocious pressure when you've got the thread sign coming up coming up coming up like that as well but the, my point anyway is that what South Africa did really well and what England did really well is that they were accurate like they were regardless of their style there was very few mistakes within what they were yeah. doing you could and add New Zealand into that as well outside of their fanciness what they were doing was breaking the gain line on their clever runs yeah exactly yeah. so I mean and like I, I just do think that like that the the style conversation is a worthwhile one, but it wasn't the, to me. It wasn't the downfall of Ireland in this quarterfinal. It's it's a it's an element of it, but their their downfall is so much more, like is so much bigger than that. To be honest, like which is which is also is more concerning, um, and that's why actually Back I think to Ireland again. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I think like the England New Zealand game could be an absolute yeah. cracker. Like the if England can bring that, you've got like. Underhill and Curry, who again in the same vein as kind of just come up and continually are smashing players, like doing it over and over again, making it really hard to find ground, and that would force, like you would force New Zealand then to show their array of abilities elsewhere. Like we, and just Ireland never did that. They never asked him a question, but. I- if you did, if you could, you'd force Mwanga to kick a bit more. You'd force Aaron Smith to try and vary up his game a bit more. But, I mean, we didn't see that in... We haven't really seen that since they played South Africa and this, the crossfield kick for George Bridges' first try. But since then, they've kind of been a bit more scripted and yeah. because they haven't had to do anything else. South Africa was exactly what I was going to ask you about. Are England better than South Africa while playing a similar game that really New Zealand didn't get out of like with you know without breaking a sweat yeah they played a very very good 20 minutes and then defended very well for the rest of the game yeah england are better in attack than uh their south africa um and that's like that's not down to personnel like south africa's underuse of chesney colby has been one of the most frustrating 
elements of this tournament like gives the guy the ball he's electric yeah. but anyway uh, England are definitely better in attack and they also like I think say you know they gave teams pictures by the way they played in the Six Nations and you had Vinopola and Tua, uh, Mantri Laghi kind of streamlining down on top of people and bulldozing them and now you see these guys kind of coming into the line but they're often used as decoy runners and you get somebody like Slade in the backfield who's so accurate with his kick or even you know like I wouldn't be surprised if you see George Ford come into this team and they try and play possession. Uh, yeah. they, they, they have ways, they have more in attack than South Africa do, so you would hope that they would come closer than South Africa did. We've seen four out halves on the field <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on Saturday morning. Like, what do New Zealand have to do then? Because we're kind of talking about England, but, you know, I think England are being lauded here amongst everywhere else as, like, potential champions. There's a sense out there that it wouldn't, like, that it wouldn't even be a shock for them to win on Saturday. So, Let's talk about it from the other side then. New Zealand will have to go and beat them rather than the other way around, you know. So how do New Zealand do that? Yeah, so like New Zealand will do. I I wouldn't be one bit surprised to see them do exactly what they tried to do or they did do successfully against South Africa. So that I mean that means that Moanga goes to boot a lot more. Yeah. That means that uh, like Bridges and Severis would be pushed a bit higher and kind of kind of like you know the. the the Elliot Daly thing is interesting because I like I think in one way Eddie Jones has been vindicated in picking him and I know he was a bit touchy about the idea that he has frailties as a fullback but I don't know if he's been posed a significant question by a team like a world class team who can move around the backfield the way New Zealand can so that's a huge huge challenge for him looking ahead to the, to the weekend like I think if you were going to try and go after any defensively go after any backfield it's probably the May Watson uh Elliot Daly kind of access yeah. there and try and move them around the place and try and get you know like and that's again I know I keep going back to Ireland but just it's, again just on this like so many basic rules about playing against New Zealand Ireland broke like don't, don't kick a ball aimlessly down Bowden Barrett's throat we like, said it to each other halfway through the game didn't we it was like, like oh that's what you were told to do <laughs> just kick it directly down the the to Bowden Barrett which he in the second yeah. half which he responded by chipping over the top claiming the ball and nearly if he got an offload off it would have been a try it was a forward pass that he, he flinged yeah. off but like the, I'd, and now England won't do that stuff so they won't give New Zealand as many entries into the game but that's not to say that that uh, like that's what I mean like like New Zealand have a way higher ceiling than what we saw on Saturday because Ireland just made it so easy for them yeah it'll, you, the, I feel like you're leaning towards England on this are you? I'm not sure like I'm, I'm, I'm not sure like I still think that they need to find inaccuracies in New Zealand that uh, haven't really been exposed yet so far so like I think it would take a, a monu- like it would England will still have to up it by about 10-15% to what we've seen already and yeah. uh, I'm not sure if they if they do that I'd, like, I'd be very once bitten twice shy I'd be very lucky yeah, to go against for New Zealand sure, yeah. Yeah. if you look at like New Zealand um, like Ione was spectacular Kieran Reid looked back to his best you had Ritalik coming back you know getting the, the, the time under Sam his Kane belt Sam Kane smashing people Kane yeah. unbelievable like the only thing you say, if that is their true form and, like, say, Reid is back into, you know, then that's a worry for England. However, I do think that Ireland's performance was so lame that it's hard to know whether that was a return to form or not or whether they were just given the free run of the pitch. Um, so I think, time, like, it, it's one of those ones that there's not really, there's no real value in predicting. I suppose we just want to look forward to it and enjoy it and see what happens yeah. um, when it comes to it. What about the other one then? Actually, while we're talking about Wales then, your thoughts on... Um, <laughs> yeah. I know we, have to talk, we have to talk about everything surrounding France and the sending off and retirement and the views and the stupidity and Jaco Piper getting involved and posing for... Like, what a, what a mess. Like. Oh, yeah. Like, 
<laughs> carnage um <laughs> like uh, yeah carnage uh, uh the the red card itself was just i mean how many times uh, like, as well like it was, just, it was just so insane like so yeah. uh, and not only that unnecessary and costly in a game like that and i thought france did like were really good in the first yeah. half and uh once again like the you know we talked last week about how close france ran wales in the last six nations and the end up you know undoing it all by a ridiculous pass and Fahamina again actually threw that loop pass in the centre of the field and mm. sure enough they kind of conspired to, to do themselves in afterwards like Wales I think will be worried by certain elements of their form like like the um, definitely after that game I actually think coming into that game as well to the truth in that too um, and then you look at how like if this is going to be two like power play teams up against each other like South Africa just look more dominant than that they just do like then that's uh, I think the one thing that Wales might have held a hat on was becoming more versatile and suddenly I think given what has come before they'd be more likely to kind of go back into their shell a small bit and that's yeah. I mean that's perfect for South Africa South Africa would love that um, so that's definitely a worry the stuff that came on after it like I think Jack Pye would just like just say no you know what I mean like I did yeah. I know I understand why people are like oh like aren't referees allowed to have personalities and stuff I don't like mind that them well. even being in the picture you know like it, it's like it's fine it's just don't mock a decision like that that changed the World Cup game the decision was black and white obviously there was no way in his in the world you don't give a guy a red card for that but you don't gloat about it either you yeah know? like yeah and like i mean how would um if it was the other way around and if he was you know pretending to be do the sad morbid and tip tackle would it go down as well like would it be so funny in that context i just think it was just just needless like you know, i'm no issue if you want to have a bit of personality and we've like we've had referees on this show and they've been really great but just don't like don't go there you know what i mean i, th- yeah. I think he just could have been better advised i actually think he's probably right to have been uh, stood down. Uh, I like the way it looks to me. If New Zealand get to the final, Wayne Barnes is going to get the final. Yeah. Um, that's been that's been lined up. If not, then I think it's uh, slightly more up in the air. But just given the the way the tournament has gone, I think that's how it will be. Nigel Owens, I like. I think did a pretty good job in the Ireland New Zealand game. There wasn't a huge amount to do. Did, did all he could to did, stop that third try? Yeah. Could, yeah, did everything he could to, to keep Ireland in the game, make it a contest. That's what you want the referee. Uh, Ireland now zero and four in uh, Nigel Owens refereed games against New Zealand. Let's not have him for those ones anymore. Um, and then it's uh, Garces, isn't it, for the other semi final? Yeah. So. Look, I think everybody knows. Like, that's the funny thing about rugby is you've got the same seven or eight referees. They're all mic'd up. You feel them all the time. Everybody has their their good and their bads, and everybody has their issues with certain referees. But you kind of do know them, and they are part of the character of the game in a way. And I think they're not too bad ones for if you're watching on as a neutral at the weekend anyway, you know, just to be mic'd up. Um, the last thing then is just a kind of a, a farewell, Morris, to uh, stylish rugby. It might not always be successful, but uh, we've got kind it's of good to watch. Four, four brutish teams left. Uh, our Japan, Ireland, another brutish, but like with no brute team gone. But uh, Japan, like their first 40 minutes against South, Af- against South Africa, I was, I think I put in a, a message to our, our, our Slack group saying like, you know, this is, I think it was 5-3 at the time and there was like 38 minutes gone and I was like this is the best game of rugby I've ever seen <laughs> and there, was, there wasn't even a chance it was being played between the two 10 metre lines but they were just they never ever ever stopped and I, even there was a question early in the second half of like you know the more you say this is unbelievable the more it feels unbelievable like why are they, why are 
the other team is the one trying to slow the game down against the tier two team and all but what you saw at the end was they had they'd run their legs off and they just had nothing left and South Africa killed them with accuracy as you said and with you know set piece and ultimately with stamina and power you know and you can't stand up to it for long but Jesus Christ it was the way you'd like to see the game played if everybody could play at the same level yeah and I actually think that that's what like on the what you just mentioned there about like you see how wrecked they were like the reason that uh Joe Schmidt would argue that I think to my mind that you know he doesn't have like his prop standing into like props playing like centers and number eights playing like tens and stuff like this is because uh, you see the effect that has on them in set pieces after that as well like they're yeah, they're spent yeah. and that's why I actually think that Erasmus was conscious of that like I think the reason that um he picked like I uh, I think Marx is a way better. Hooker, like their best hooker was on the bench I think you know the, the B starting as a prop I know he got the yellow card but I think that was again that was a, with the view towards the set piece that these are all like that was what they were based around the, those kind of selections and he got those right and South Africa then were just brutally like ridiculously accurate against a, a really kind of actually intelligent attack line like, they, mm. like they, I wouldn't undersell it just because of the scoreline I wouldn't undersell what Japan were doing in attack like they're that's they're, what I was actually going to say it's important not to kind of say because I'm saying it's exciting or whatever as if it's kind of this like pat on the head isn't it great to see the, the lads play in a certain way it's nothing to do with that it was more that it was just like this is the kind of rugby I haven't seen in a long time and they're trying different things that we haven't seen it, it, it comes from a pure this is brilliant like this is how the game should be played and they were i think they outperformed themselves like i don't i do i think it did work in a way i understand what you're saying as the way it ultimately didn't against a far superior team in a world cup quarter final you know but ultimately like they beat ireland they beat scotland by bringing in the kind of rugby that like is rarely played because they're so so well coached and so so well drilled and the reason they could do that by the way is because as um conor donald told us that they drafted a lot of players into the sun was had Jamie Joseph had total control over them um, they're all in his own system he had access to them and could kind of decide when they played and stuff like that is there any system really close to that that maybe could replicate it that you know with a manager who has total control over all his players like uh, uh, and I, uh, to be honest I actually Argentina. do <laughs> <laughs> I just do think that uh, like in, particularly in attack there's things that can be learned from what Japan do the way they use like forwards into trying to back the how you know the, even just really basic stuff like their uh, attack shape like if you've got a one three two two the way they set up and it's it's so easy to get with into your game when you do that now you they probably needed to have a bit more of a, an attacking game and their main issue actually is that they didn't have enough like combat to go right we'll just go one off runners down the channel here against South Africa South Africa is a far more superior team in terms of like um, size wise here like they're a bigger team yeah. so they couldn't really ch- uh, trouble them there but yeah I mean like they're definitely missed I think they're probably one of the, my highlights of the World Cup so far is the way that they've played, played rugby me too for sure um, and just like do you think it will we talk a lot about here about the way tier 2 is treated and the way it's a lot of lip service do you think this changes anything or does it or you know is there more lip service on the way about what we can do for japan forgetting that georgia exists or samoa exists or anything like that uh their style and their performance changes nothing to my mind but the audience they attract changes everything so and now the reason the audience is there is probably down to that style and things like that as well but the tv audience particularly like their numbers have been phenomenal and you've already seen um brett robert the world rugby president come out and talk really positively about Japan and the potential for them to be the rugby championship and the sun was to return I don't I wouldn't be one bit surprised to see that come very soon because uh, that's a huge market that I think we're going to value and you know if it means getting Japan to the tournament I think that's a good thing 
Great. Okay. Well, we're either going to have a England Wales Rugby World Cup final or a New Zealand South Africa World Cup final because nothing in between. No, <laughs> n- nothing else that can happen. Um, before we go, then you were speaking to uh, the USA attack coach Greg McWilliams. Yeah. So Greg, as I mentioned earlier, kind of interesting just to get his own thoughts on how he ended up where he is, but also just the way rugby is going. He's actually talked in the past about working with Joe Schmidt and the influence he's had on his attack. So given how this tournament is going, given the moves in the USA, I think it's a pretty good time to catch up with Greg. All right, I'm delighted to say now we're joined by the USA attack coach and the head coach of Rugby United in New York for 2020, Greg McWilliams. Greg, how's things? How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Um, back in America at the moment after returning from Japan, back with the family, so it's nice to get a few days off. I'm going to ask you actually about your own story and how you, you ended up in America in a couple of minutes. But just firstly, as you can imagine, it's been a, a time of a kind of a lot of negativity in Ireland, what, what happened on Saturday. I know you've spoken in the past about Joe Schmidt's influence on your own coaching degree. When you look at what happened against New Zealand, what were your own thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was obviously very disappointing. Um, you know, on a smaller scale, you know, we lost uh, to Tonga in our last pool game and I still feel deflated. So I can only imagine how, how they must feel, particularly going into a World Cup with high hopes after coming off the back of, of becoming the world number one. And you underperform. It's very tough. And I think uh, the manner in which they went about their business will be something that the IRFU will need to uh, look at and make sure that they're in a better position to compete come 2023. But knowing Joe, I can only imagine now that you know, he's in a pretty bad place. Um, you know, he's only human, just like the Irish players are. And they're going out and try and do the best for the people of Ireland. And when they let people down, that's when it's the toughest. So um, I just hope now that the the RFU can put a plan in place where they develop the game in a way that can be more competitive against the top teams. And I think the great thing about this Rugby World Cup is we're seeing a positive element to the game of rugby, particularly in how uh, Japan have gone about their business, but also watching New Zealand's um, attacking play against Ireland. I think you know we would have learned a huge amount as to how we need to progress the game uh, to be more competitive so I think we need to look at that as, a, as an exciting and challenging project the problem is that you know Andy Farrell starts and they'll be under pressure to, to win um, in the Six Nations and, and the problem is over a four year cycle you'd love for that first year of the Six Nations for people to realise that you might need a, a chance to to bring in new players and look to develop the attacking and defensive game a little bit to be less predictable and uh, the problem is they're in a game where you you need to win um, so trying to get the balance right yeah I might actually ask you a small bit about more about that about what you can learn from playing against teams like New Zealand in a second but just you touched off your own World Cup and how the USA did and I was going to ask you about your own impressions about whether or not you were satisfied with it it was interesting to hear you reference the Tonga game which you obviously competitive in and then despite the scoreline in the end the France game was actually hugely exciting and uh, for an hour nearly you, 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 you're riding that as well Like it sounds like you were slightly down after the end of the World Cup given uh, as a collective yeah, I'm I'm down. I'm disappointed, and I'm I'm deflated. To be honest, uh, I'm deflated because we didn't show our capabilities over four games. Uh, we had a group of players who, over the last two years, have gone on a really terrific journey. We have a head coach who is exceptionally clear. Um, he's a very very good plan. He's like a, he's like a businessman. He understands the model that he's looking to build. I think the disappointing thing is that, you know. There were moments in each game where we lacked, um, I suppose, efficiency and accuracy at critical stages. And I think you always, as a coach, look back and see how you, how you could do things 
differently and nothing could have prepared us for the time and space that defending teams take away from us. So, you know, we'd spent three months in camp together training really hard. The guys were incredibly committed to what we we're trying to achieve. But my God, when you play against England, followed by Argentina and France and Tonga, particularly the first three teams, the amount of time and space they take away from you in attack just meant that our players are being tested in an environment that they're not used to. Um, so, you know, for me as a rugby coach, instantly I'm thinking, right, well, in my prep, I wish we attacked against more numbers more often, allowed defenders to be off- offside, um, you know, just to try and create uh, situations that our players would have been faced with. Um, but look, hindsight's a great thing, but, you know, I've been a rugby coach for the guts of 23 years, 24 years now. And I think the last five weeks, I've probably learned more than I have in the previous 20, 24 years. I don't know if that tells you a lot or not a lot, but I'm definitely you know, re-energized and I'm really clear on, on the vision that I'm looking to bring into New York. Well, that's really interesting because we've had, in recent weeks, we've had coaches like James Coughlin and Ian Costello tell us about how they react to, to watching tournament rugby. But they're obviously outside the bubble. They're not coaching with, they're coaching with their, with their own respective clubs. But you, you're somebody who's actually experienced, you know, you've been on the sidelines watching these games, prepping a team and then watching it unfold at the kind of, against world-class teams, particularly in the case of somebody like England. I can imagine like uh, an experience like that, like a tournament like this, must have been pretty formative in terms of, I suppose, adjusting your, your own coaching philosophy or at least the, the way you, you do coach. No, definitely. It was, look, it was an incredible experience. I mean, we have been away for a huge amount of time, um, as every team has, but in America, it's a massive place. I mean, it's, it's quicker for me to fly from New York to Dublin than it is to fly from LA to New York. <laughs> so it's a, it's a big place and, you know, players, we go around the country a lot. You know, we come in together for a camp. It's like a four-hour flight or it's a five-hour flight where when you're in Ireland, you're coming together for a camp. For most people, it might be a 25-minute drive from Dublin. So it's a, it's a very different model. And, you know, some of the players, even though they're professionals, they're not playing at the highest of levels, so they're not earning a huge amount of money and the amount they sacrifice. You know, I, I learned a huge amount about myself and about areas I need to develop and, and be better at moving forward because you always have to learn this game. But I, I think at the moment, very different, for example, than Marcosi with the Irish women's side in 2014 where he didn't want the tournament to finish. Um, and yeah, I'm just disappointed because, you know, as a rugby coach and as a rugby player, when you're representing a country or a team, you just want to have the supporters happy and proud and excited about how you play and the results that we're doing and, and where the team is going. And I suppose that goes back to the first question you asked about Joe, is I can only imagine how those Irish players feel now, getting off the plane in Dublin, feeling like they've let the whole country down. And um, certainly, you know, you know, from a technical and tactical point of view, there are so many elements that that I would have noticed throughout the World Cup that uh, I'm just, as again, I'm just very excited to now put into practice and and go into a new uh, environment with a new group of players, um, some very, very good players, and try and build a, a, a style of play that's very clear to how New York are going to play for this, uh, this season's MLR side. 
I know you're going into a role as a as a head coach, obviously, but can I just ask you a small bit more about attack? Because I think it's pretty kind of pertinent at this moment in time, particularly given I think the majority of the criticism of this Irish team has been their attacking structure. And then you look at the, I remember after the 2015 World Cup and there was a huge amount of emphasis on the idea that teams need to become more expansive, particularly the Southern Hemisphere teams. There was a reason why they didn't have any semi-finalists at the time. And if anything, I actually think it might have gotten the other way. Like you saw coaches like... Andy Farrell and John Mitchell and Sean Edwards really earned their salt with these like 14 men incredibly quick and up uh, speedy defensive lines and it strikes me that in attack you just mentioned even coaching in the tournaments in attack you're often reacting to what is happening elsewhere like there's new developments in defense and it's your job nearly to to react to that like when you're looking ahead to maybe how you'll coach with New York or even just in general about what the USA have done now are you trying to I suppose predict the the pictures you'll see in defense and then react to them or is there any way that you can maybe be a bit more more proactive like in it, this can be pertinent to an Irish sense as well and try and kind of coach from there on Jeez, that's a loaded question <laughs> uh, like per, every coach is, is different and that's why it's so interesting to talk to other coaches and that's why so many people are keen at watching rugby because people do have strong opinions and, and rightly so because they look at how the game is played some people like to play tight games some people like to play kicking games some people love a good scrum some people love when teams play wide I think the key thing about England and New Zealand who for me are the two best teams in the competition the way their attacking structure is set up means that they have the ability to run pass and kick at each moment in the game so okay. you know defense, defense at the moment now like the majority of defenders you're going to have 13 players in the front line or close to it with two in the backfield um, so they're going to be able to bring a little bit more line speed. So you see teams like New Zealand, now they like to attack in the middle because from the middle of the field, defenders generally have to um, go up a little bit slower because it's a lot harder to come up you know, with a fast line speed um, off the middle than it is off the edge. So New Zealand will play to the middle and they'll have pretty good shapes either side, but if you look at how Japan play and how New Zealand play and how England play, it's very, very prescriptive in where they get to as players. and they, They're very, very fit and they do a lot of work to get into a really good attacking position. And then the idea is to empower your players to have the understanding of making the right decision based on what's in front of them. So as a coach, you're very structured at them getting into a really good position that provides all three opportunities to run, pass or kick. And then I think your job as a coach is to you know, through your training week is to put them into situations where they're experiencing big men on their feet coming hard, what the right decision is, and that might be to kick behind slow line speed. Or it might be a case of, you know, playing a particular adaptive game where you might have, you know, a lot of defenders in the backfield, so your attacking team are identifying that and playing to where the space is. And at times then, you know, making a situational where you might have to reduce how you how you play. So, like everybody understands that Japan and saw that Japan played a brilliant standard of rugby for the World Cup and it's terrific and it's going to help the game evolve now and hopefully young coaches can, can see that the positive way of playing um, is the right way of playing but against South Africa in the quarterfinal of a rugby World Cup you know times Japan when they weren't getting the momentum going forward and attack maybe they would have been in a better position to have kicked the ball longer and had line chase and tried to win that field territory a little bit you know, maybe reduce their attack to, you know, whether it was to play a few malls or to keep it tight for a little bit and then go wide. And because, you know, it's hard to, to win a rugby game uh, one week and then continue the same style into the next week because teams defend differently. 
So it's important that you have the ability to, I suppose, to be able to play a couple of different ways. But the philosophy is the important thing that, you know, the coach will always drive, but your players need to own it. And okay. uh, I think the best cultures and teams in the world, and if you look, if you look at New Zealand, then you look at England. There's Scott Wisemantle, who is the England attack coach, who, you know, I've worked with before and I get on very well with him. I admire the way he goes about his business because he puts his players in uncomfortable situations where they need to think. And, uh, you know, it's very exciting. I think I think that semi-final between New Zealand and England is going to be, you know, really fascinating because tactically and technically they're both very, very strong, both very fit. Um, but anyway, look, I've, I've, I've gone rambling. I told you I can talk about this for a long time. But certainly for me, going into, you know, Rooney, it's about understanding your players, um, about seeing where their strengths are and then devising a plan that suits the strength of your players. I mean, there's no point in going into uh, a group of players and wanting to play wide if you don't have the ability to do that. And there's also no point in trying to play, you know, a power pressure kicking game with a group of players who are designed to play wide. So you need to see what players you have, profile your group, and then come up with a plan that suits them best to make sure that their their strengths are being utilised as often as possible. That's fascinating. Um, Greg, just on your own story then, I think a lot of our listeners would probably be familiar enough with it given the, the press that was around when the USA came to Ireland last year. But just for those who aren't aware, how did a, how did a former AIL player end up coaching in America? Um, so I was a schoolteacher in St. Michael's in Dublin. Um, and, you know, I, I developed a love for coaching as I was studying in UCD. Um, I, I got a part-time job coaching in the school and I was playing AIL rugby at the time. And I, I was an okay rugby player. I was a little bit slow. I think my mind was, you know, saw space and unfortunately my body wasn't able to, to, to get it. there. So uh, coaching was just a, something that really appealed to me and then I, I began to really hone in on it and I coached the SET side in Michaels for a number of years and I was coaching in Black Rock Rugby Club and I was coaching with uh, Leinster Underage and, and you know I got the job then with the IRFU with the women's side and I went to two Rugby World Cups with them and the opportunity came to, to go to America to Yale University and I, I was very interested in education being a school teacher and, and doing the HDIP and the correlation between education and uh, and coaching. Um, so I took the opportunity to come to America and from there then I got involved with the Collegiate All-American side, which is like their national U23 side in 2015. And then I got the call up uh, very gratefully um, in 2017 to be at the national side. So, um, you know, I, I have been at Yale and I'm going to remain with Yale as well just to help them out from afar. But, this is um, this is now a, a new challenge for me, and already, even though I'm taking the, you know a few days off to try and rest after the World Cup, I'm already you know on work mode. I'm just trying to hide the laptop from my wife and trying to, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really excited to get going now, and um, you know it's going to be it's going to be a real challenge. But you know we've got some some exciting players, and we're in a brilliant part of the world, and. There's a couple of new signings coming over from Ireland that I'm really excited about. So uh, it, it, I'm really looking forward to it. 
Yeah, we spoke to Tyg Leader a couple of weeks ago who told us about the efforts that are being made in the US to kind of grow the game, I suppose. Now, he was speaking from a player's perspective and from his own perspective in terms of trying to progress his career. But I can imagine from a coach's perspective that as well as, you know, upskilling your own players and kind of developing your own coaching patterns, you must be kind of conscious of the fact that there is a need to, to grow the game in, in the US as well. Like, there's a huge potential there. It's just about maybe kind of, or maybe are you even conscious of that fact? Like, would that be part of your remit? Yeah, I, I think if you look at uh, USA's performance in the Rugby World Cup, I mean, we've definitely improved, but so is every other team around the world. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we need to have a look at ourselves as well. And the important thing for, you know, any union is their underage structure and the coaching staff throughout their pathway to make sure that your players are developing the right skills to be able to think for themselves on the field and, and to make last minute decisions and put people into space and to be able to track and tackle successfully. So like in America, the important thing is really is to try and get, you know, the public and, you know, people who do play football from an early age just to consider rugby as being an option. Um, a lot of our players in America start playing the game in high school or even in college. So, you imagine Ireland preparing for this Rugby World Cup where the majority of the players don't play until they're 18, 19 years of age. You know, you're already behind the eight ball and, and that's what it's like in, in USA. So, you know, Gary Gold, who's the head coach of, of our team, um, you know, is a phenomenal coach and the players put everything they could into it. But the dream for us would be through the MLR to start developing academies and start developing youth programs that you know, younger players are going to be able to play the game and get exposed to the game at the highest level. And that will only be good for a national game because to compete now against the best teams in the world, you need to be, you know, exceptional both sides of the ball. And, and that only comes through practice and, and developing bigger training ages for your players going into big competitions. So the MLR has, I suppose, is the gateway for us. It's on national TV over here. You know, it's really developing in terms of um, the support that, that clubs are, are picking up on. And, you know, our job is to try and, you know, make it as attractive as possible because it is entertainment at the end of the day. It's got to be entertaining for people who are sitting down to watch on TV at home when there's such choice at the moment. And it's got to be entertaining for people to want to give up their Saturday afternoon to come with their kids or come with their friends to watch a game. We've got to make sure that we're playing a style of rugby that wants to bring them back. And that only comes by, you know, collectively having buy-in as an entire group as to how we're going to play and I, I think the MLR has that uh, has that at the forefront of what it's trying to do it's an entertainment industry and we're here to provide entertainment for, for people and that's exciting Absolutely yeah and I think you only see the, the positives that can have when you look at the new markets that the way Japan seems to have attracted in the, the TV audiences in the in the World Cup at the minute the, the Yeah no uh, totally the final thing I wanted to ask you, you referenced it there, the, the Irish players who are coming to New York. And we've seen, I mean, even just recently, Cotter Marsh and Paddy Ryan and guys like this. But I think that with the, you know, this rising professionalism that is kind of everywhere now, particularly in Ireland, but the fact that it still remains only four provinces, it just ends up with kind of a bottleneck where you've got more professional players, cap players capable of playing professional rugby, but less spaces for them. And generally, you've seen them kind of gravitate towards the UK or France. But it's, it does feel like the US is becoming kind of a, a real market for, or, a, you know, a go-to place for, for Irish players, that it can be somewhere that they can kind of live out professional careers and kind of live out that dream, as you mentioned, and even for coaches. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I, I'll be fully transparent. I mean, there's a player that just signed 
it hasn't been announced yet. He's a really good young player who's playing AAL Division 1A. I believe that he is good enough to be playing for Appavinch Province in Ireland. Okay. My goal over the next year to 18 months is to try and help him get to a point where he can go back and get that contract that he can't get at the moment. So I think, I suppose, like my point is that there's two ways of looking at it. One is, you know, is this a, a league that people come to to retire or is this a league that people come to when they're quite young, get experience of playing at a high level, um, even if it's not quite as strong as, as you know, pro, um, pro rugby that might be in Europe. They're still going to expose them, expose their skill set in the right environment to improve them and give them the opportunity to, to try different things and to develop their game. And then hopefully some players can go back to Ireland and pick up a contract. And I'd love to see a, a New York player playing for Munster in two years' time and starting in a, in a European Cup game. That would be my ideal goal. Um, but at the same time, we've got to be really conscious of developing our own homegrown players. So any foreign players that we're looking to bring into Rooney, they're very specific players to what I'm trying to build. And they're players who I believe are going to come in and you know, help the players around them become better players and help young kids you know, through local coaching uh, to come in and really grow the sport. So um, I have responsibility for that. And I think there's so many players in Ireland who don't develop until they might be 22 or 23 that have been missed by, by academies that are still terrific players who are playing AIL rugby. You know, and you know, even the first couple of weeks of AIL now, I mean, I'm looking at players who are playing for certain teams and you know, there's some outstanding performances going in. Players who might feel that they've missed pro rugby, but they haven't. They just need the right opportunity. And I think Rooney can do that. That's and magic. any other MLR team can do that. Um, but at the forefront, you know, it, it is important that we're developing American players, particularly in key positions. So you see at the moment, including Rugby New York, that a lot of our players who play in, you know, positional specific key roles like hooker, scrum half, 10, tight head, fullback, very often because there are a few of those players who played at a high level in America, we bring a lot of foreigners to fill those positions. But ideally, over the next couple of years, you're trying to bring young American players who are playing hooker, playing nine, playing ten, who are going to be good for for the national team moving forward. So it's about getting that balance right. Um, at the moment, the the squad limit is ten foreign players per team, which is a hell of a lot. Um, but that will hopefully be reduced over the next couple of years once younger players start coming through the system and uh, and filling those roles. Greg, that's brilliant. I can imagine we're going to be in touch with you again as, uh, as US Rugby really starts to grow. But in the meantime, thanks a minute for talking to us today. Mars, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So that was Greg Williams, the USA attack coach. Yeah, very interesting stuff. And uh, it'll be interesting to see um, what he does from now on. And we'll be keeping an eye on, you know, we're talking about what, New markets, what yeah. could be happening in Japan. We have to keep on eye on what's going to be happening in America as well. That was an epic World in Union for this week. We hope we will be a little bit more positive in coming weeks. I can't guarantee it, but we do have, you know, the best part of a World Cup still to come. And we have, uh, obviously, the domestic season kind of getting going. Uh, so, really, the rugby season is only starting, believe it or not, even though the World Cup is coming to an end. Uh, we will be here with you through the good and the bad, uh, mainly the bad if this week's anything to go by. Uh, if you enjoyed the show or if you enjoy listening to us, you can do so every 
every week. Uh, we come out on Tuesdays. If you look up uh, balls.ie in your podcast feed, you can subscribe and rate and everything else that goes along with it. If you're just interested in rugby and don't like our football show on a Monday or our other stuff that we put out, you can just search the balls.ie rugby um and you will have our rugby feed there um and you can get that along with the brent pope show which will be coming on thursday and stephen ferris uh, who speaks to us on the build-up podcast as well each wednesday so lots of rugby on our feed it'll be all negative this week lads i'm not going to lie to you but sure look people love a bit of negativity in this country as well you know so until next tuesday when myself and morris will regroup and come back at you take it easy